Hello, Susie. Um, I have very many nice memories of you being on Time Team with Martin Biddle and, and various other people. How many Time Teams did you do and, and which one was the most memorable? Oh gosh, I did four. Uh, so it was in 2012, uh, which both feels like a long time ago and yesterday. And I, I went to the Moor, which is where Martin Biddle was, and we went to Upton Castle, Pembroke, um, and the Coniston Copper Mines, and uh, Henham Park in Suffolk, where they hold the Latitude Festival, where we were looking for the Tudor House and the Georgian House. And they were the, it was the most magical time. It was just a wonderful summer, actually. It was, you know, met some brilliant people. And uh, I, you know, whether the effigies at Upton or, um, you know, thinking about Charles Brandon at Suffolk. And the thing about Time Team is that it was, it's as much fun as it looks like it is. <laughs> so I also have memories from, and I don't remember wh where it was, but you know, chatting with, laughing my head off with Francis Pryor um, and Phil, uh, you know, after hours. And do you remember picking up a guitar? A couple of people, you had a guitar, someone else had a guitar. There was some singing and dancing one night. I think, I, I don't know if I'm making this up, but I think at Henham, we also all went swimming in the river uh, at some point. I mean, it was a complete wild So there was just, anyway, there was a lot of fun and, and laughter uh, had. You know, when I think of historians, and I go back to Robin Bush, um, who was a completely sort of unreconstructed chap of his time, uh, loved wine, cigars, and and uh, a, uh, he would have his little hat on, and he would bring the history to it, and he did it in his own particular way, and uh, which we loved. But I always felt with historians that um, the difference between where archaeology can provide something for history and where history can provide something for archaeology and you've done numerous programs now on television uh, taking historical lines and things where do you think being able to get your hands on the physical evidence is that a distraction or is that helpful it's not a distraction in fact and i think but i think one of the interesting things is and i think this is changing um but I think for me, there was a certain period of time where historians were slightly disdainful of the stuff, you know, and were had their kind of primary focus just on the documents. And, um, you know, obviously there were always architectural historians and art historians who did were thinking about material culture, as, it, as it's called. But I think that actually thinking about uh, the things of history connects us emotionally much more with people of the past um, and can add a sort of the, a layer of the texture of people's lives a and place of course like you know being where things happened um, I always find that you know if you go to a historic house or whatever the, there is that sense of tangibility of the past that sense that you only time and not space separates you from these people I mean, it, I'll just give, it's given me a thrill just thinking about it. You know, it, it is the, the shivers down the spine. And, uh, you know, and I think it's very powerful. And I think that kind of emotional connection we have to the past is, is to, to be revered as much as a kind of head connection.
I notice your wonderful book line shelves behind you and you know my images of time team historians were that we would be out there up to our necks in mud I'd come back and you guys would be carefully leafing through documents how did it feel to be a and, and you normally have loads of time to do this you can go to a library and all. we would throw you in and for three days we needed the stuff from you by the end of the second day what was it like being shoved into that active process of digging looking for stuff and three days to do it yeah well it's absolutely thrilling because uh you because we were genuinely working hard back in those rooms trying to find um things that you needed um uh you know we so we had the luxury of often being dry and warm when you weren't but we but on the other hand you're sort of rapidly trying to find out what needs uh, to be known um and whether the sources are going to come up with the goods or not, which is always the question. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, archaeology has is a kind of uh, has a kind of magic for me. It's a kind of <laughs> because you're, you know, someone like Phil can say, "Well, look, you know, you, like in the Richmond program I've just watched, you know, there's a ghost of a wall," and I'm like, um, "Okay, <laughs> you know, like I, he 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 can interpret the evidence that in a way that I can't." But on the other hand, then I can interpret some other evidence for it, you know. So it, I, it was thrilling. It was thrilling being part of that, um, part of that time scale and that, and also the collective process. The thing about being a historian often is that it's quite a solitary endeavour, and time team is was appropriately named because it very much felt like this team effort. And uh, I've always wondered where where does your um, concentration some people might say obsession with the Tudor Elizabethan period where I mean you you've done recently a book on Henry VIII um, coming out in paperback and and uh, you know I sometimes look at what you do you feel like you got stuck in that period what is it that's driving you further and further and you know we've talked about Henry VIII in the past what is the the grail that is undiscovered that you want to find well, the thing is, it's um, as you get to know a period, you discover more and more what the gaps are. So that's how you get stuck, because you find out what we don't know. You know, like, for example, you think the dissolution of the monasteries, like, obviously really well known. I'm not writing about this at the moment, but um, actually there is no brilliant book about the dissolution of monasteries, for example. Like, there is loads of research that hasn't been properly done on it. Who would have thought? Or on, I mean, I'm giving away all my ideas now, but like on Henry VIII going to war, like there's so much to be done on Henry VIII's efforts. So anyway, so you kind of discover all the things that um, are gaps. So I think that is inevitable. And I actually came into it kind of accidentally. I did my a doctorate on French history um, and I was lucky enough to sort of win, I suppose, to be appointed as a job as a curator, research curator at Hampton Court Palace. So then I skipped over the channel and, you know, went back a few decades to work on um, early Tudor history. And yeah, so I sort of have kind of got stuck there. I've written quite a few books about it now, but I, my interests are, are broad and I, you know, I have plans to do other things. So there are other periods that are calling to me, whispering their sweet nothings, you know, so, you know, I may, I may defect. I was kind of interested in, you mentioned a while ago to me that, that there was a particular aspect of Anne Boleyn 
because uh, you know I feel she's almost familiar various people have done programs on her they're all I turn on the television and there's always another version of Henry VIII's trials and tribulations because he's such a character mm. what what was it in particular is there something that you're in search of related to Anne Boleyn well lots of things but one thing I'd say particularly that's a sort of hot potato with historians is that you know Anne Boleyn of famously is beheaded by uh, Henry VIII and the charges are adultery, incest and conspiring the king's death. That much we know. Historians contest this period though. They contest whether it's happened because Henry wants to get rid of Anne, whether it's a conspiracy led by Cromwell, whether Anne actually did the things she's accused of. This is sort of like, so there are about four different historical positions and you, you can look at the, the academic journals. It, it, like there are historians have fought it out in the archives, you know, in the in the articles. I mean, so there's been extraordinary to and throw. And one of the reasons is because we don't have the trial documents. So all that survives at the National Archives is the indictment. But actually what happened in the trial, we have, you know, Eustace Chapwee, the imperial ambassador, who's there, who writes down what he remembers from it. And we have bits and scraps of other things but we don't have the trial documents. And that could be the thing that really provides an answer. But, you know, were they destroyed? Have they been eaten by rats? You know, we have no, <laughs> like, we don't know. But the, it, should those, oh gosh, I, yeah, should those turn up somewhere? That would be amazing. We'd all be all over them, like, you know, Gannett. And I sort of get a sense when I talk to you about that, that you, you get the same thrill about the prospect of that a find of, of documents that have somehow made it from the past to the future, all the processes they've gone through. And I, I hadn't realized your sort of French connection and you, you've got a book called The Voices of Nimes. And when you describe that process that you had to, reading the thing in French, ancient French, if that's the right word for it, I, I suddenly felt a sort of cool, calm descend on me which was you somewhere in some place in France or UK, I don't know, with all those documents. What, what was it that you were looking for in them and, and what revelation did you sort of get? Yes, they, I mean, those are amazing. because uh, So I was working from records produced by the Protestant church in the south of France where people converted to Protestantism. They were, to, in order to sort of defend themselves against the onslaught of Catholic attack, it was believed that they needed to assuage God's wrath. And they would do that by adhering to strict moral codes. And so they kept uh, a court to police people's morals and they sent out elders from it to you know, go into the streets and see who's doing what's anything wrong. And it becomes this kind of perpetuating mechanism whereby people gossip to, and then things get reported. And what was fascinating for me in looking at those records, which are, you know, bound in vellum, parchment, covered with secretary hand, preserved in, you know, the little uh, departmental archives in Nîmes or Montauban, Montpellier, um, some in Paris, is that, uh, that they contain details, not just of how the church is operating, but they contain details of uh, ordinary people's lives and particularly lots of detail on women's lives. These are women who, um, you know, most, basically most of women who've ever lived left no record to posterity. Most of them couldn't write in maybe 5% of women in Europe in the 16th century could write, 16th, 17th centuries. 
So um, they're not keeping diaries or letters or anything we can get, uh, you know, they tend to not own that much. Ordinary people don't tend to leave wills, you know, so they aren't appearing in records, but they are appearing before this consistory, this church court. Um, and so I got this amazing intelligence about, uh, uh, you know, things, things like magic and adultery and uh, sexual assault um, and domestic violence and, you know, just uh, uh, sometimes quite horrific insight into the details of ordinary women's lives. It's always interesting to, to talk to people who are just fascinated and intelligent about the subject they're chasing. You know, we've had discussions with Kate Moss and her research is into Catharism and the area, the long dock. Um, there's a sort of thrill about the pursuit of knowledge for its own sake. And, and to be honest, I always find it a bit of relief when we're not trying to work out, where, you know, where the next television program's coming from. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. And Kate, actually, and, and we've talked because her series of novels that she's producing at the moment, Burning Chambers, obviously one of them was, um, is in 16th century London. It's, it's, it's with the Huguenots, exactly the people I was doing my historical research on. So we've got lots to talk about there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I guess it comes down to whether you really care about this stuff or not. And I, I do. I mean, it, I, I know it's a slightly um, hopelessly optimistic agenda, but I do believe that we can get closer, at least, to finding out the truth about the past. And that's what I'm always interested in trying to you know, uncover. So. Um, very kindly on, on Time Team's behalf, we asked you to look at a fairly historic chapter in a, a various excavations, which was um, Richmond Palace. Uh, and what, we, what were your reactions? That was quite a time ago now, but we chose it because I wanted to find something near to some of your interests. So the place where Elizabeth actually died, I think. How, how did you feel watching Time Team from the past? Well, it was lovely. First of all, it felt like a lovely uh, encounter with old friends, uh, slightly younger versions of themselves than than when I knew them. Or when I since I've known them, you know, people like Tony and Phil and um, Stuart, um, but um, and John, of course. But the, I think uh, it was it, what it did. What was fascinating about it was it absolutely had that sense of the urgency that you have on time team, you're trying to do something in three days and that, you know, is gen the genuine urgency while, with also the restrictions, you know, a, a fourth trench was negotiated, but really it was supposed to be three trenches and you're supposed to try and find it out, you know, taking up that beautiful lawn. And so there's that aspect to it as well. And then, but also the grand scale of the ambition. So trying to find, um, something so important in this case, you know, the, the Privy Chambers of Richmond Palace. And I loved also that you were drawing on expertise like the, the local historian, um, John, who was, came along, you know, that, that it, Time Team was never snobby. It's all, you know, it was always, uh, it drew on who, whoever had done the best work on, on it. Um, and so the other thing about it is it's just, you know, it's unpretentious. You, I, it reminded me of those there's that glorious summer, the camaraderie, the the authenticity of it. And um, so, no, I really enjoyed watching it. What What do you mean by authenticity? I mean that um, when so for a start, just the three day thing. When 
when people uh, look at Time Team, they're not looking at something that has been created. You know, get these tales from other television shows where somebody says they're living on an island or something, but actually they're being flown off each night to stay in a hotel. Like the, we were staying in hotels or often not on site, but the, when it says it was doing it in three days, it, it literally was done in three days. It started the first day and, and there was a, you know, it was very seriously adhered to. Um, and so going on time team, you know, you go for a week, basically, you turn up the night before, you're ready for the, the, the Tuesday morning or whatever it is, Tuesday, th Wednesday, Thursday, and then off you go the, on the Friday morning. And so um, it, it, so the, that was what I mean in terms of authenticity of time, but also authenticity in terms of how people interacted. So you don't have uh, a kind of polished presenter version of people on time team. You have the, you know, that, that that is what Tony's like. That's what feels like. You know, nobody's creating a version of themselves, and so you also see, um, and you know, you also see. Obviously, some conversations might have happened, and you have to go back and um, have them again because. But most of the time, the cameras are there as well. It's the other thing about Time Team is you always had a number of cameras, so things could be captured as they were happening, um, and so therefore you see the affection. Therefore, you see the affection of people for each other and you see the joshing. And so you get this sort of wonderful sense of, of it as being something that's real. And I think that people care about that. They don't want to see a, a, a version of reality that's just been constructed for the cameras. You know, they want to see what's actually happening. And was there a favourite moment in the, in the programme that, 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 that caught your eye or you thought, oh, you know, that was a useful thing to have found out or just a... Uh, serendipitous moment? Well, I mean, uh, basically everything that was found, I mean, the exact position of the privy chambers, the, the entranceway, the extraordinary discovery that it, you know, that makes absolute sense. Of course, it lines up with the outer gatehouse of Richmond that still remains through to the privy chambers, that it was brick and only the stone facings. You know, I, I had imagined from the, the pictures that I'd seen, that it was that these were that it was a stone building, but actually, of course, it makes sense that Henry the Seventh was building in uh, the you know the trendy uh, building material of the time, which was brick. And uh, so there were lots of lots of wonderful details uh, about it, and and how things kept being recreated from Henry the Fifth, then Henry the Seventh. You know, um, it's just a, a lovely kind of in layer of insight into the past uh, that you don't get from the documents I look at necessarily. And as a uh, historian, could you describe for me the moment of Elizabeth's death or the moments before and up to her death at that time? Yeah, so Elizabeth um, sort of refused to, to believe she was dying, but there's a, uh, you know, so she uh, didn't want to sit down or to lie down at the same time because she secretly knew, of course, that she was. So, so there's a sense she's wandering around um, the stories of her kind of sucking one of her fingers, um, you know, so she's really kind of disintegrating and we have her servants running around uh, trying to, you know, armed with cushions in case she might fall down at any point and they need to, to, to grab her. And of course it's a moment high with tension because the whole, you know, story that we all know about Elizabeth is that she doesn't have any children. So there's the question of whether it's going to be this smooth transfer of power to um, James the Sixth of Scotland, would soon to be James the First of England, and 
the, you know, the moment that Elizabeth dies, uh, therefore the, the, the ring that she's been, um, uh, been given as a symbol of her power has to be sort of spirited off her and whisked up to Scotland for that transfer to happen whilst no one knows about her death and the whole thing's kept a secret. So you can imagine everybody's absolutely on tenterhooks trying to sort of manoeuvre around this old queen who can still be angered easily and may yet live and <laughs> make you rue your, your mistakes. On the other hand, you've got to be absolutely poised for what's going to happen. So it, yeah, it was high, high tension indeed. It would have been a brave person who decided to take that ring off her finger. I could imagine him, I presume it was a him or a, I don't know, reaching yes. down, holding the ring, then her eyes open and you think, oh, oh, whoops. Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly, yes. Not quite dead yet. Uh, <laughs> um, going back to historians on time team when you were on time team do you, did you feel as a historian that you were listened to that, that what you were doing did feed did you feel like you had a way back into the program in the middle of all the hectic excavation and things Yes, I felt the two worked very much hand in hand. I mean, we, we for example, were looking at some effigies in Upton Castle, I remember that quite vividly, and thinking about um, the, the dating those. Uh, I remember us, um, you know, thinking about the history of Wolsey and uh, at the Moor, and then, you know, Catherine of Aragon staying there later. So there, were definitely, there was definitely a sense in which the... Uh, what was going on on a historical level was intertwining with the, the digging that was being done, for sure. And how did it feel to have Martin Biddle with you on a shoot, who's one of the, the great and good, I think, of British archaeology? He certainly is. It was amazing. I was really honoured to meet him. Uh, you know, his dig at Nonsuch is the stuff of legend. So, um, yeah, you know, it was, it was just wonderful. A great honour. One of the things we often ask people, it was two questions we asked them, uh, what would be, is, is there a reason for Time Team coming back? Why bring Time Team back at this time? And, and, and what do you think about that? Well, I'm, I imagine there's a couple of different answers to this. The first, of course, is that people love it. Um, and they love uh, you know, the team. Uh, uh, Obviously, we don't have Nick anymore, but we have a, we have a great number of wonderful people who worked on Time Team. And the but above all, I suppose it's alludes to that point I've already made about authenticity. I do feel that there's a hunger now for programs that um, demonstrate that kind of really honest way of making television. Um, and I think also there's an, another element to that, which is that what Time Team shows you is not just the conclusions. It's not just the, the pat uh, answers, it shows you the process, it shows you how evidence is used, archaeological evidence, historical evidence, how you've got a problem and you, you dig, literally in this case, for, a, for an answer. And I, I don't think that's done that much on television. I did, it, I, it's, in most of the time what we're getting is a story and we love stories and that's great. But I think people also are intrigued by the detective nature of history and archaeology and genuinely seeing that enacted in a period of time um, is thrilling because people are part of the part of the chase and i'd like to ask you this is a you know question we ask people because it, it's something we're trying to work our way through um, you know it may be possible that some of the original team might get involved in the future we've also got what i 
don't really like to call the next generation, but you know, people who are in their twenties, thirties, um, that sort of mix. Do you think mixing in some of the new guys with the original team, that kind of way of doing it would, would work? Well, it would work because that means that they can learn from the original team. So, uh, you know, there's such great expertise, um, ways of working, you know, uh, you know, sense of process, um, such knowledge and expertise that you would want that to be passed on to uh, the, the newcomers, I suppose. And so I think working together, uh, which time team in, in its name always, always does do that and i think that would create that sense that, that this these are the inheritors of the of the crown as it were <laughs> you know and uh if we were doing a particular period um of uh, an area that you had a knowledge in and we needed a historian uh, do you think you might be available for something like that i would jump at the chance i mean my memories of working on time team are so warm um i absolutely I absolutely adored it. It was just so much fun. And and it's interesting, you know, as I did four time team shoots and, uh, you know, I have a car sitting here on my desk from Tony. Like I have, um, I've stayed friends with a couple of the, you know, some of the producers like uh, Kellen Williams, Sean Cross, people like Raksha Dave, Rob Hedge, you know, I, the friendships that came out of it have been profound. And that's just from four different shoots. So I, I loved it and I would be, you know, I'd be very, very happy to work on it again. Well, I have to say, Susie, it'd be very nice to have you on a time team shoot. I, I always like that sensation of taking historians and giving them quite difficult problems to solve in three days and throwing them at the documents and say, oh, we've got to go and dig a hole, but you need to tell us this by, you know, two o'clock tomorrow. And, uh, and uh, it was a very enjoyable experience. And I think historians are very important. They represent a thread of the known history. And from that, sometimes there's still stuff we don't know about yet. If you had one site, I'm going to give you time team for a week. You can have everything you want, the geophysics, the helicopters, the science, anything you like. And I'm going to let you take them to one particular site. It's your fantasy time team dig, so it can be anybody. You can choose who you want. Where do you think you'd like to take them to? So... Uh, picking up on the Time Team special we did on Henry VIII's Lost Palaces, I would like to take you to something that, somewhere which I think would have been marked a lot more this year if we hadn't had a pandemic, which is to the field of cloth of gold. So the, with our Tudor surveys, there are sort of 15 contemporary maps. Um, uh, there's an amazing painting at Hampton Court of this meeting between the English and French kings, you know, three weeks, a sort of Tudor party without parallel that happens on English soil in northern France. And uh, we know that it had, there was the castle of Guienne and there was a temporary royal palace. Um, and this is all part of uh, the, the Tudor lands around Calais, the, although at the time they called it Calais, like to rhyme with Alice. Anyway, so what we could perhaps identify are some of the defences of Calais, um, some of the, maybe the castle of Guienne, the exact location, maybe even this temporary palace of brick and timber and glass that's thrown up for Henry VIII. It must have been scrambled down quite quickly. Some of it might have uh, been left behind. Um, 
it might be a fantasy dig because I'm not quite certainly if some of the fields on which the field across gold happened are still there I don't know if some of it is now under tarmac I don't know but um that would be that would oh that would be amazing funnily enough we actually researched quite a bit about that site um and the for for anybody listening in um that picture of Henry visiting that site I mean, we're not talking about a picnic site here. We're talking about the recreation of a city with wooden beams, all sorts of things. And, and it's, it's a Hampton Court picture, and it's an amazing thing to look at. And I think that would be very interesting. I don't know how the French authorities would feel about it. Um, but it, what would be fascinating would be to take your French knowledge and background and research and look at it from the French point of view. Look at it from the French point of view, yes. I mean, the 12,000 people turned up, like, which was the size of, you know, the second largest city in England at the time. It was, it was huge. It was huge. Um, so, yes, we map and absolutely looking at the French sources as well as the English sources would be very, very clever to, to get into their perspective. You know, one of their greatest kings from the French point of view, Francis I, François Premier, um, and his wife, Claude, you know, that who were there um, a meeting with the English delegation. Yes, it would be that would be the way to do it. <laughs> and I love the fact that the two kings were somehow trying to outdo each other in splendor, what they could arrive with. So everybody, you know, really went for it. You know, the golden turrets and towers, and it was the biggest show off between the two kings, which. Uh, you'd think there's got to be some remnants there. So I, I think, think we should definitely uh, look at that and put it, we have a list of fantasy digs and we're putting some research into them. So at some point in the future, I would like you to be on a time team in France, having researched the records, and we will do a bit of digging on the field of cloth of gold and it would be lovely to have you there. Oh, that'd be amazing. Susie, thanks very much for joining us on another Time Team Tea Time and uh, I look forward to your next book and uh, your next appearance which I think may be with the Smithsonian or one of the channels um, which I'm sure would be fantastic so thank you very much for your time. It's lovely to talk to you.